Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to skip over verses 6 through 10 and then pick up in verse 11. Uh, Verses 6 through 10 we're going to cover next week when we start looking at the millennial kingdom. But tonight we're going to look at the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, when he actually comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Here we see a great multitude in heaven praising God for the destruction of Babylon. You remember, we've already seen in our last time when we were together a couple weeks ago in chapter 17 and 18, the destruction of Babylon because of religious idolatry and because of commercial idolatry. And here we see John seeing a rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of Babylon. Now, at the same time, this is all culminating at the end of the tribulation period, and it's in conjunction with the return of Jesus Christ and the battle of Armageddon. Studying Revelation in chronological order is helpful. Hopefully you found it to be very, very helpful to look at it in chronological order. But at the same time, it's very, very tricky for this reason. A lot of stuff happens all at the same time, and it's very, very hard to put it in then this, then this, then this. The best way I can illustrate it to you would be to just say, if you were to try to just write about one play in a football game, you'd have a hard time, wouldn't you? Because you could write about the wide receivers and how the wide receivers would go out to the edges of the field. And when the ball is snapped, they would run down the field and some would go out and then turn 90 degrees while others would keep on going. You could get into writing about the cornerbacks and the safeties who were trying to defend them and trying to figure out which one might have the best possibility of the ball being thrown to them and these types of things. You could talk about the running backs and you could talk about how there's a one that runs ahead of time and blocks for the running back and makes room for him to run. Or you could talk about the linemen and how the defensive linemen are trying to um, uh, get to the quarterback, and yet the offensive linemen are trying to keep them from getting to the quarterback. Yet at the same time, they're not just standing there trying to block. Sometimes they will fake out, not be in their position, and run around over here to make a play on this side. And then you could even talk about the quarterback and his role of how he's trying to read the defense and trying to figure out everything that's going on and make the appropriate either handoff to the the running back or the throw to the wide receivers, or maybe just pick it up and run himself. And my question to you would be, which happened first? They all happened at the same time, didn't they? The ball snapped and then all that stuff happens at the same time. And what we're going to be looking at tonight is all happening at the same time. We've been seeing the stage being set of the kings of the earth being gathered in the valley of Megiddo to make war against Jesus. As he's coming back, the destruction of Babylon comes. As you're, the, many of the things that we're going to look at tonight, the harvest of the earth, the judgment of the nations, the blood that's flowing, the separating of the sheep and the goats, all these different things all are happening at the same time. And we're going to deal with some of them, most of them tonight. The rest of them we won't have time to get into. We're going to get into at the beginning of next week's study. But I want to do a little question, uh, give you a little trivia quiz. You saw the word hallelujah here tonight. Does anybody have any idea... How many times the word hallelujah is in the Bible? Just take a wild guess. 
How many times do you think the word hallelujah is in the Bible? Thousand? Um, how many? Four hundred? Seven hundred and eighty. You say five? The answer is four. It's only in the Bible four times. You just saw three of them in verses one, three, and four. The fifth one is in verse six. Isn't that an interesting thing? We would think that the word hallelujah was all throughout the whole Bible. Now, the word hallelujah means praise God, praise to the Lord. But at the same time, the Bible does say praise the Lord in many places. But the actual word translated hallelujah is only in the Bible four times. And it's just in this chapter, chapter 19 of Revelation. If there wasn't chapter 19 of Revelation, you wouldn't even ever have the word hallelujah in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? That's just kind of a cool deal. But that should also tell us something. This word hallelujah is coming out at this time. This is a time of celebration, but I want to clarify something as well. Please notice that God is being praised for his judgments being right and true. Look at verse 2. It says, For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. I want you to not miss something here. The, the great host in heaven that's praising God for his judgments being right and true, are not rejoicing over the death of the wicked. You know why? God wouldn't allow it. You know why God? I can tell you that God wouldn't allow them to rejoice over the death of the wicked? Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Let me show you what God says about it himself. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 23 and verse 32. Ezekiel chapter 18, God says in verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then verse 32, he answers that question. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. So are these people praising God because now they're getting it? No. They're not rejoicing over the death of the wicked. They're praising God for the fact that what everything he does is right and true. And as you're about to see, not only is God going to bring a time of judgment when Jesus returns to this earth, it's going to be a massive, massive time of bloodshed. But they are not praising the fact that the wicked are getting punished. They're praising God for the fact that what he does is right. You remember a while back we saw when the angels in charge of the waters were praising God for the fact that he was right in the, turning their waters into blood. That's what's going on here. But I also want to point out to you that this day of judgment has been long prophesied. That's why you're going to see tonight, and that's why I told you at the beginning, get a piece of paper and get, get, get some paper and, and a pen or a pencil, because I'm going to give you so many scriptures, and there's way, way more than I could give you tonight. But actually, most of the Bible is pointing, and the prophecies are pointing to what we're looking at here. There are more prophecies about the second coming than about his first coming. And we all know that he came the first time and fulfilled all of those prophecies. He's coming again, and he's going to fulfill these. And the scriptures talk about it a lot. This day of judgment has been long prophesied. I'm going to just give you a few quick ones uh, at the beginning of our study. At the close of our study, I'm going to give you some more that actually go into even more detail. Go with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, look at verses 29 through 31. As you're turning to Acts chapter 17 and starting in verse 29, Paul is uh, in Athens, Greece. He's on Mars Hill. He's speaking to a group of men called the Areopagus. He's noticed all these altars to these different gods, and he found, he found one that was made to the unknown god in case they missed one. 
And he's just finished, begun to, beginning to explain to them. He goes, let me tell you about this unknown God. And he said that this God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives life and breath to all men. He also then determined the time set for them and the exact places they would live. And he did this so that man would perhaps reach out for him and find him. For he's not very far from us. For as your own prophets have, or poets have said, we are his offspring. And look at verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Here Paul says, God has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world through the person he's chosen to be the one he judges, to be the judge. And he's given evidence to who the person is by raising him from the dead. By the way, who is the one that's going to judge the world? Jesus. Now, I want to pull out a couple of things from this that I want you to not miss. First of all, in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus himself said, the father judges no one, but he's handed all judgment over to the son. And for years, many people have been saying foolishly, well, one day when I stand before the big guy upstairs, he's going to weigh my good and my bad, and he's going to find out I haven't been that bad, and we're going to be okay. They think they're going to stand before God the Father and be judged. The Bible says that God the Father is not going to be the one who judges them. It's Jesus who's going to be the one who judges. Oh, and by the way, he's not going to measure how good you've been or what you've done. Jesus himself said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? Didn't I prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, he's not going to use how good we've been or how bad we've been as his measuring stick. The issue is whether or not he knows us in a personal relationship, whether or not we have entered into that relationship by faith through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We become his family. We become children of God, not because of anything we've done, but by the grace of God. And that's how you get right before God. And actually, Jesus is the one who's going to judge. Now, let me also point out one thing real quick as well. All the way through the scripture, when someone is rejected, you see, rejected by Jesus at a time of judgment, you'll see the terms, I never knew you. You'll see it also in the parable of the, of the, the um, ten virgins and the ones who are left outside and aren't allowed to be a part of the kingdom. And they're knocking at the door saying, let us in. You look at the scriptures from the inside. God says, I never knew you. Folks, let me just tell you something right offhand. And I'm going to hopefully let the spirit of God, let this truth sink in. If you are saved, you are eternally secure. If God gives you his spirit, you are his forever. And some people try to teach you that it's possible to lose your salvation. Actually, the scripture teaches the exact opposite. God says to every one of these, I never knew you. Not I knew you once, but now I don't. It's always I never knew you. So I want you to understand that what did Paul say here in Acts 17? God has fixed a day. By the way, the day of Jesus coming back, it's already set. We've been kind of lulled into thinking that it's kind of nebulous because of some of the scriptures we've misunderstood. You see, the disciples in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had died on the cross, after he'd been in the tomb, after he rose from the dead, he taught his disciples for 40 days. And at the end of that 40 days, they said to him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want to just point out something to you real quick. If Jesus was teaching what a lot of Christians today teach, 
that God was done with Israel and now all the promises are being fulfilled in the church and that there is no second coming and millennial kingdom setting up on the earth. Many Christians believe in a second coming, but they don't believe that he's coming to this earth to set up a kingdom. And most Christians today teach that the kingdom is just now, and then when Jesus comes, he takes us to be with him, and everybody else goes to hell, and that's what all happens. But if that were what Jesus was teaching in those 40 days after he rose from the dead, why would his disciples say to him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They understood that that was still to come. But what did Jesus say? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be my witnesses all over the globe. He said, it's not for us to know the time. We also know that Jesus himself said about that day and hour, no one knows, no one except the Father. But don't miss this. The day's already been set. Every day, every minute, we are getting closer to the time when Jesus comes back to the earth. We know from the scriptures there's a lot of stuff that's going to still happen between now and then. But at the same time, what I want you to understand is as much as we look forward to the day of Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom, as you're going to see tonight, that's not going to be a time of celebration at the beginning. It's going to be very clearly a day of judgment. I want you to see something in Isaiah 61. Let's jump real quick to Isaiah 61. Again, there are many prophecies all through the Bible that talk about this day. They've been hinted to all through the scriptures. Later on, we'll see some that don't even hint. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now look closely. If you know any, if you recognize this passage, if you've done any study, you'll know this is the exact passage when Jesus went into his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and you can double check me later on. In Luke 4, you'll see he goes into his hometown of Nazareth, and because he's a rabbi, because he's a teacher, they hand him a scroll, and they hand him a scroll of Isaiah. The scripture says he unrolls it to this point right here. It wasn't just haphazardly, it just happened to be that passage. He unrolled it to this passage, and he reads it. But if you look at Luke's account, Jesus stops reading in the middle of verse 2. He stops with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, he sits down to teach, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, why didn't Jesus keep reading? I mean, it's very clear that there's the rest of the verse. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus read that part? It wasn't time. His first coming was to be the Savior. To die for the sins of the world. He says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He also said, I'm not judging right now. There will be a time when I judge, but now I'm not judging. Now he came to save. In his second coming, when he comes again, the rest of this passage will be fulfilled. And it will be the day of what? Vengeance of God. By the way, I don't want you to miss this. That's why it's so important for us as we study prophecy to know the way that the scripture has said that God is going to work in different times. Because that way you're able to rightly divide the word of God, as the scripture says in Timothy. Because right here in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, you have in the first half of the verse of verse 2, it's referring to his first coming, the time he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. We call it the church age or the age of grace. 
and the day of vengeance of our God. And that's going to happen at least 2,000 years after his first coming. So here you have two totally different periods of time prophesied about in the same verse. That's why when we study prophecy, you can't just assume that it's just all going to keep talking about the same thing. It jumps around. And that's why we need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's why we need to, as we look at it, look closely and allow the Spirit to help us see. Is he talking about the church age? Is he talking about the second coming? Is he talking about the millennial kingdom? Is he talking about the tribulation period? I had a person write to me uh, an email just this past week because he was upset that I was teaching dispensationalism. He thought he accused me of teaching a false gospel because there's a person who is a well-known dispensationalist whom people all reject his teaching, and so do I. But this person teaches that God saves people in different ways in different time periods. I've never said that and don't believe the Bible teaches that. And this person told me that I was teaching a false gospel because I was teaching dispensationalism. And I actually wrote this individual back and said, I'd like to meet with you. And I actually did meet with this individual and talk with him and explain to this person, look, I believe that God works in different ways in different times because the scripture says so. In Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it says in the past, God spoke through the prophets in now he's speaking through his son. He worked one way at that time. Now he's working a different way. All the, through the scriptures, you see the book of Romans tells us that even though people died between Adam and Moses, they died, but they didn't break a command. There were no commands of God to be broken. Adam and Eve had a command that they broke. But between Adam and Moses, there were no commands of God to break. Yet the people still died to show that there was sin. Then God did a different thing during the time of Moses. As you know, the law was given. And the law, what was the purpose of the law? To show us that we're sinners. We're not going to be made righteous by observing the law. It just reveals our sin. And then Jesus comes on the scene and proclaims the year or the time period of the age of grace or the Lord's favor, the church age, in which we know now the scripture says he's going to save the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But is he done with Israel? No, not, not at all. There comes a time when he'll gather his church, take them to be with him. And there's a seven-year prophecy we've already seen in our study of a tribulation period still yet to come. And at the end of that, Jesus himself comes back to this earth literally and sets up a kingdom for a thousand years. But listen closely, in every single one of those dispensations, it has always been and will always be salvation is by faith in God's provision for man's sin. We just happen to be on this side of the cross and know that it's Jesus. Abraham was given righteousness because of his faith, because God knew that Jesus was going to pay the price for Abraham's sin. And don't hear me say that God saves in different ways. He never does. It's always going to be by faith. By grace, through faith in God's provision for man's sin. We know it as Jesus. And Paul himself even said in Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 16, that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ. So folks, this day of judgment has been long prophesied. I'm going to give you a couple more to look to one to write down and one to look at. Second Peter 2.9, you can go ahead and look at that later on, how God has reserved the unrighteous or the wicked for the day of judgment. Second Peter 2.9. And before we move on, I want to have you look real quickly with me at Isaiah chapter 2. You're in Isaiah 61. Go to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Isaiah chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, 
against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains. Against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. And against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish. And against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Does that not sound like what we've been studying in Revelation, where the people hid themselves in the rocks and the caves? In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the, uh, clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You see, there's a day when he's going to come and he's going to declare himself to be who he really is. And everybody will know it. Everyone will acknowledge it. But it's going to be a day of judgment and a day of terror. The nation of Israel kept talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And God sent the prophet Amos to him to say, you keep looking forward to the day of the Lord. It's not going to be something you look forward to. It's actually going to be a day of judgment and gloom and terror. As if one man who runs from a bear into his house and when he gets inside the house, a snake bites him. You think you're going to get away. You're not going to get away. Folks, aren't we grateful for the fact that God has given us salvation simply by grace through Jesus Christ? And as much as we like to go, woohoo, when we hear about the return of Jesus, uh, you're going to see tonight, it's going to be a time of vengeance, a time of justice. And the great multitude are going to praise him because he's right and true in what he's going to do. So let's take a look now. Go to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Let's take a look at what it's going to look like when he comes. And I got preaching so much, we got a lot to cover. So... Look at verses 11 through 21 in chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured when with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You're going to see in what I just read to you 
a lot of things in the Old Testament that have been talking exactly about this return. So here we see Jesus come back now. He's the one riding on the white horse. You remember the Antichrist at the beginning of Revelation when they began to open the seals, came on a horse, but he was trying to pretend to be Jesus, but he wasn't Jesus. He's the Antichrist. But here Jesus comes back on this white horse and look at how he's described. There's no question that it's Jesus. There's no way you could sit there and go, well, I, I'm not sure. Is that, maybe that's somebody, maybe it's an angel or maybe, folks, He's described with almost every way in which Jesus is described all the way through the scriptures as a sword coming out of his mouth, which we see in Revelation chapter one. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to rule them with an iron or with iron rod. And we just can go on and on. And his name is what? The word of God. Any question as to who's riding on this horse? It's Jesus. And he's coming back. Now, I'm going to just reference it. We'll explain later on tonight why he is Dipped in blood. His, 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 it looks like he's covered in blood. You're going to see it. It seems like it's just dipped. That's not a real good picture because you're going to see from other prophecies, Jesus' garment is stained in blood. And some will say, well, that's because he was crucified for us. You're not gonna, that's not what this is talking about. The rest of us are all coming with him dressed in white. You notice how the rest of us aren't touched? He's the only one covered in blood. And you're going to see later on why. And I'll explain that to you in just a little bit. Let me remind you of Revelation chapter 16. Look at verses again, verses 12 through 16. In Revelation 16 and verses 12 through 16, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. And verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. You got to remember, we kind of haven't been here in a few weeks, but at the end of the trumpets, at the end of the bowls being poured out, the nations of the earth all gathered to the valley of Megiddo. Are they there to fight against Israel? No. Remember Israel at this point, at the midpoint, there's two-thirds of them are killed. And of the one-third that's left, one-sixth of them go into the wilderness of Basra. I'm going to show you that a little later on tonight in the area of Edom. And the other half stays in, the other sixth stays in Jerusalem. But Israel has been under attack. They're not coming against Israel. The Antichrist has already stepped himself into the temple and declared himself to be God. They're gathered to fight against Jesus because Satan knows that he's coming back to the earth to set up his kingdom. And you know Satan's just not going to hand it over to him. There's going to be a massive battle on the earth when Jesus comes back. Now, a passage that we have skipped over in our chronological study of Revelation will help us here as we get to Jesus coming back. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we'll look at verses uh, 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. And you're going to see that this is Jesus. Because if you were to look at a prophecy in Daniel 7, we're not going to have you take the time to turn there. But again, write it down. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we see that Daniel was given a vision of one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the prophecy there in Daniel 7 said that this one was presented before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days handed him a kingdom that will never, ever end. And here we see one, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, like one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, uh, sorry, came, came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Here we see two harvests. Jesus swings the first sickle, and he harvests the earth. And you're going to see in just a little bit, he separates the righteous and the unrighteous in this. In the second coming, not only is he going to be defeating his enemies, he's at the same time. It's all going to kind of happen together. Going to be gathering his elect from the four winds of the heaven. We're going to see that in just a second. He's going to be separating the sheep and the goats. We'll deal with that more next week. We won't get into that tonight. But he is at the same time defeating his enemies and also making ready for him to set up his kingdom on the earth. We also see the second harvest where an angel comes and just gathers all the grapes, if you will, from the earth. And they're thrown into this wine press of God's wrath and it's trodden outside the city. But instead of grapes juice coming out, what comes out of this wine press? How deep is this blood? High as the horse's bridle. For 1,600 stadia, by the way, let me just give you a little help. That's the length of the Valley of Megiddo where all these nations have gathered. And you're going to see in our study, if you were to do a little research, you can check it out. It goes from Basra all the way to Jerusalem. And so folks, what I want you to see, well, don't take my word for it. Let me show you what Jesus had to say. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. By the way, this isn't the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood. This is different. This is at the end. At the very end of the tribulation period, the sun just stops shining, period, and the moon, because of that, will disappear. And the, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But didn't we just read in Revelation 14, he saw one like the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven? This is the second coming. And he'll send his angels out with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Again, the rapture has already occurred. This is not the rapture. This is actually the gathering of the harvest of the earth. Remember, uh, the angel comes and says to Jesus, go ahead and gather. People have a hard time with the fact that an angel told Jesus to go gather the harvest. Keep in mind, there's a couple of things that might be possibility. One, Jesus said, no one knows about that day and the hour, not even the Son, only the Father. It could be that the Father has said, tell my son it's time. At the same time, how many of you have ever um, prayed? Have you ever asked Jesus to do something? Why do we get so indignant that an angel says, hey, it's time to harvest? Haven't we done the same thing many times in our life? Lord, please, Lord, do it. Martha did that. Lord, tell my sister to help me. People have been telling him what to do for a long, long time. We don't have any problem with it. But Jesus is the one who is gathering the harvest of the earth. 
And then an angel comes and gathers the, wine, the, the grapes for the winepress of the wrath of God, and blood flows. Well, let me show you about this harvest a little bit more. Go to Matthew 13. Jesus actually talked in great detail about this harvest himself in verses 24 through 30, and then we're going to jump to verse 36. Matthew 13. And by the way, while I was reading this passage last night, God showed me something that I had never seen before, and I can't wait to show it to you. In Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, I didn't even see it in my study. While I was reading it, he just opened my eyes to it. In Matthew 13, look at verses 24 through 30. It says, He, meaning Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but the, gather the wheat into my barn. Now jump down to verse 36. Then he, meaning Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the, of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds, by the way, did you notice that the world and the kingdom are two different things? Don't miss that. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, after the harvest, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Do you see it? At the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, and that's when the harvest of the earth is going to happen, of those who are left on the earth, the righteous are going to be left on the earth to populate the millennial kingdom. The unrighteous are going to be gathered to be burned and to be sent to a place of, the Bible calls it torment, Hades, until the time of the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the millennial kingdom, and we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 20. But I don't want you to miss, remember we've already talked about this. Jesus himself said, as it was in the days of Noah, two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. On the days of Noah, when God brought judgment on the world, who was taken, who was left? The unrighteous were taken, the righteous were left. Right? Look closely here. The unrighteous will be gathered and taken away and burned. The righteous will be left on the earth at this time. You're going to see that next week when we look at the sheep and the goats. Also, don't miss this. Did you catch it here? Look at it again in verse 43. Then, this is after the harvest, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Yes, the kingdom of God is now, because Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is here and it's within you. And yes, the kingdom of God reigns in the hearts and the lives of those of us who have his spirit within us as he's king of kings and lord of lords to us. But this world right now is not his kingdom. 
And there are too many Christians that are saying that there is no millennial kingdom, there is no coming kingdom on the earth literally, that actually the church age is the kingdom, and then at the end he's just going to come and take us and we go to be with him in heaven. But the scripture says that there's a coming kingdom. Remember Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the scripture says after the harvests, After the wicked are taken away and the righteous are left, then the righteous will shine in the kingdom. The kingdom is to come, and I can't wait to show it to you. Next week, we're going to spend the whole time looking at the millennial kingdom, and you'll be amazed how many passages in the Bible talk about this literal time on the earth and what it's going to be like. And when you see it for yourself, you realize that can't be spiritual, that can't be symbolic. It's too literal to be symbolic. But... The second harvest in Revelation 14, like I showed you, is the harvest of the grapes of wrath for the judgment of the wicked. Go with me to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. We'll look at the beginning part of Joel 3 next week when we look at the sheep and the goats. But for now, just go with me to Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. And what I can't wait for you to start to see some of these passages we're about to read, because all that we've done so far in our study is going to start to take, take effect you're going to start seeing things in these passages that I'm going to read to you that are going to, your spirit is going to go, we, we saw that already. We've already seen this. Revelation said that's coming, and it's going to all start to come together. Listen to Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, another name for the valley of Megiddo. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Again, the prophecy back in Joel. Gather all the nations there. Gather them all in the valley. God's going to be there to meet with them, and he's going to deal with the nations. And the sun and the moon are going to go black. And everything's going to shake. As remember, we studied already about that earthquake that's going to level everything on the earth. And Jerusalem's going to be raised up in the center, split into three parts. It's all coming. Go to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. Look at verses 1 through 6. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Don't miss this. 
upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword and it is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Don't miss this. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Here again, we see this prophecy about the return of Christ in this time of judgment when he's going to gather the nations and judge them and the sun and moon are going to go dark and all this kind of stuff. But it now says that the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Did anybody ever... You want to know where Basra is? It's in Edom. Which is, if you're looking at a map of Israel, it's southeast of Jerusalem. And I believe without question, because I'm going to show you from Scripture from two other places that I believe that the Scripture is showing us that's the place where the nation of Israel is going to run when they're chased out of Israel, when the Antichrist steps into the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation. And that's where they're going to be protected by God for three and a half years. And that's where Jesus comes back first. I'm going to show you it from Scripture and why I believe this. Now, I'm going to tell you, for years I didn't understand this, nor did I believe this, because I had put together some other Scriptures incorrectly. You see, if you remember back in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus, after his 40 days of teaching, after his resurrection, when he ascends back to the Father, he ascended and all the disciples were standing there looking at him and the angels appeared and said, why are you looking up? The same Jesus will come back in the same manner. And I also knew that there was a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14 that talked about how his feet were going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it was going to split in two. And so I just assumed since he, was going to, he left from the Mount of Olives and that he would come back in the same manner and the prophecy said his feet were going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it was going to split. I just assumed he was coming back first to the Mount of Olives. That's where he left from. Thought that's where he'd come back. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But the more you let Scripture speak the more you start to realize that actually the Bible tells us that he's coming back to Basra first where the nation of Israel is being protected. He shows up there and he's going to defeat his enemies in the valley of Megiddo all the way to Jerusalem. And at the end of this battle of Armageddon, he's going to send the Mount of Olives. It will split in two and the millennial kingdom will begin. And we'll get into that next week. But you want further proof? Again, don't just take one verse and say, well, that means it's Basra. Go to Isaiah 63. Go to Isaiah 63, and you'll start to see a lot of passages start to come together. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from where? From Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments, uh, like one who has treads in, treads in the wine press, I have treaden the wine, trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Where is he coming from when he does this, according to the prophecy? He's coming from Basra. He's coming from Basra. Let me give you one other passage. Go to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now, I'm going to read it to you in the ESV. It's a little bit more clear in the King James and the American Standard. So I'm going to read it to you also in the American Standard. I'm going to show it to you here in the ESV. Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
God says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Remember, that's the nation of Israel. I will gather the remnant of Israel. Those are the ones that are left. I will set them together like a sheep, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So here the scripture prophecy says that Jesus is going to lead out his remnant of Israel. He's going to go on before them and he's going to lead them out. And they're going to be a noisy group when, when that happens. But there's something here that the ESV doesn't translate like the ASV and the KJV do. So I'm going to read it to you in the American Standard Version. Listen to Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the American Standard. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has gone up before them. They have broken forth and passed on to the gate and are gone out thereat. And their king is passed on before them and Jehovah at the head of them. So when you put these prophecies together, you see that the scripture teaches that Jesus is going to lead the nation of Israel, the remnant of Israel, out from Basra. And he's going to be stained in blood. By the way, how come he's the only one stained in blood when this battle's going on? And the rest of us are coming with him, but we're all dressed in white and we're not stained. He's the only one doing the fighting. You saw that in Isaiah 63, didn't you? I did it myself. Now, years ago, when I was in college at Flagler, I actually, a lot of pounds ago, played basketball at Flagler. And my roommate one year there on the team with me was a guy named Bob. And Bob was an unbelievable physical specimen. He was six foot six, 260 pounds. Unbelievable athlete at this size. He actually became a professional wrestler later on. But while he was there in college, the, the Toronto Blue Jays and many other baseball teams were recruiting him to be a pitcher because he could throw a baseball like you wouldn't believe. But not only that, he was such a physical specimen, six foot six, 260, that when we on the basketball team in practice sometimes would just for the fun of it, one guy on each shoulder holding on to his shoulder like this, he could stand still. And with two people hanging on to his shoulders, he could just jump straight up and dunk a basketball with two people hanging on to him. Unbelievable physical specimen. He was my roommate one of the years I was playing basketball there. We were in our dorm that night, and it's late, and we're doing some studying. And there were some high school kids outside. This is the Henry, have you ever been to St. Augustine, the Henry Flagger Hotel? That's back when they let guys stay in there. Now it's just girls. But we were in the bottom floor, heading, facing toward the east, over toward the Bridge of Lions. And some high schoolers were out there throwing rocks at the windows and doing things like that. So my roommate yelled out the window, hey, boy, knock it off. And the voices from outside said, there are boys out here if you want to do something about it. He turned to me and he said, Jim, come on, we're going to go fight them. <laughs> now, I'll be honest with you, folks. I've never been in a fight in my life. I've been beat up a few times, but I'm just not a fighter. It's just I, I try to avoid it as much as I can. I'm just not into that kind of stuff. I said, Bob, you know me. I'm not a fighter. I don't want to go fight these guys. He said, if you don't come with me, when I'm done with them, I'm going to come back in and deal with you. I said, okay, let's go. So Bob gets up, and I walk out behind him, and I'm not kidding you folks, I am just walking behind Bob, because he's a big dude, and he's going out that door, and when he gets there, he opens the door, rips his shirt off, and said, let's go! And they took off. And I said, we took care of them, didn't we? 
You want to talk? I was so relieved. But that's how, thank God, it's going to be when Jesus comes. Oh, they're going to be gathering, thinking they're pretty much ready to go. And Satan's convinced them that they're going to win. And he's going to defeat them all by himself. And he's going to do it himself. Because what does the Bible say about repaying evil for evil? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This is his day. This isn't our day. This is his day. And he's going to defeat his enemies. And he's going to, in the harvest, separate the righteous from the unrighteous and begin to set up the millennial kingdom. But when Jesus comes back, folks, we get excited. Oh, the return of Jesus. Thank God for the rapture. I can be excited about that. It's kind of hard to get really excited about the return of Christ to the earth because in the first days, it's going to be pretty bad. I mean, blood, as wide as that valley is, this deep, for almost 200 miles, folks, it's going to be a massive, massive slaughter as Jesus comes back and claims his kingdom. There are many, many prophecies concerning this day, like I said, more than we have time for tonight. I'm going to close tonight in the time that we have left by just reading to you just some, a few. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Because the word fold could be, Basra and the word fold could be translated the same. Basra means sheepfold. Actually means gate, gate of the sheep. So they put sheepfold, but Basra, I think it means Basra as well. Remember how Jesus said he was the good shepherd? But he also said he was the gate. Isn't that cool? They're going to be in Basra, the remnant of the sheep. And he's going to come. Remember what he said? I have other sheep, not of this fold. I'm talking about us Gentiles. He's going to bring them in too. But he's going to come to where they're hidden. And he's going to lead them out. And they're going to be noisy. But he's going to go on ahead of them. And he's going to defeat his enemies all the way to Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12. Look at some of the prophecies about this. Verses 1 through 14. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, I who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Do you see it? Again, this is the end here. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. And when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, there's still a sixth of the Jews who are still left in Jerusalem. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Haddon and Rib 
Meribim and the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, and the wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Go to chapter 14. Look at verses 12 through 15. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Don't miss something here. Because I'm going to, in close tonight, show you something that actually goes against what most prophecy people have been teaching for years. Because I believe, and I'm going to show you from Scripture why, that the Gog and Magog battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not referring to a battle that's going to happen prior to the end. But actually, I'm going to show you from Scripture that the Gog and Magog battle is actually going to begin around the midpoint of the tribulation, culminating at the battle of Armageddon at the end. And I'm going to show you it from Scripture. And in a second, hopefully, you'll see it very, very clearly. But there's something in here that, is, that will help us with this. Look again at verse 13. And on the day great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the other one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, garments in great abundance. All right? So at the end of this battle, not only is there going to be a lot of blood, there's going to be a lot of spoils, and they're going to be gathered. Don't miss that. And turn with me to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because there's something in Revelation 19 we read earlier that I'm going to bring you back to in just a little bit that will help us put this all together. You see, for years, people have been teaching, and a lot of prophecy people that I respect, men that I know, very famous Bible preachers, actually have been teaching for years that the Gog and Magog battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to happen prior to the tribulation period. You've probably heard them say this. And their reasoning is that in this, and we're going to read it tonight as we close, that they're going to gather the spoils for seven years after this battle of Gog and Magog. And they just assumed, I think lazily, that since it said they're going to gather the spoils for seven years, oh, that has to be prior to the tribulation period because the tribulation period is seven years. Well, let me show you a couple of things as you're going to see it tonight. One, are there going to be anybody collecting anything in the second half of the tribulation? No. The Jews are going to be two-thirds of them killed, one-third left. And of the one-third, half are going to stay in Jerusalem. The other half is going to run out in the wilderness because Jesus told them to run. And these are the ones that he's going to come to first. And as he comes back, that's when he's going to pour out his spirit of grace and mercy on the Jews in Jerusalem. And they're going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn. And at the same time, as you're about to see in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that the prophecy says that at the end of this battle of Gog and Magog, that from that day forward, they believe in the Lord forever and ever. If that's prior to the tribulation period, not possible because the Jews are going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist for a while. You're also going to see that Gog and Magog is going to be coming against the nation of Israel at a time when they're living in peace and safety and their walls are down. That's only going to happen when they sign this peace treaty with the Antichrist and they're going to be fooled into a, low sense of secu a false sense of security. And you're going to see 
In Ezekiel 38 and 39, a bird feast where God calls all the birds to come and gorge themselves on all the flesh of the kings and captains. And it's going to be word for word what we just read in Revelation chapter 19 in the return of Jesus Christ. So let me read to you tonight as we close Ezekiel 38 and 39 and watch how all of a sudden this whole passage becomes so clear that this is beginning at the midpoint of the tribulation, at some point after the midpoint of the tribulation, and culminating in the battle of Armageddon. The word of the Lord, verse 38, chapter 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog on the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush and put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tagarma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, and many peoples are with you. Be ready. And keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. By the way, is Israel unwalled right now? No, it is not. They've got walls. They've got walls. Unwalled villages, and I'll fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize, spoil, and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder and carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? In other words, why, why are you coming against Israel? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, and you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of, he, he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Does that sound familiar? The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every Wall shall tumble to the ground. Remember our study in Revelation? We've already seen that this is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. I will summon a sword against Gog on my mountains. On all my mountains, declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. Didn't we just read that in Zechariah 14? With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones. Doesn't that sound like the end of the tribulation period as well? 
fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and my, make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and of the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and those who dwell securely in the coastlands and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then the, those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years. So they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forest, for they will make the fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God." On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hemongog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on that day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of the seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. Hamona is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. Now, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of the lambs and he goats, of bulls and all of them, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dwelt, dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Kind of clear that the Gog and Magog battle culminates in the battle of Armageddon, doesn't it? It's very, very clear. I think it's going to happen at right around the midpoint that they're going to start to come and gather to come against Israel, and it's at the final battle that all of this finally comes to play. Let me close in Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. I know what time it is, and we got to go. Verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. It's the exact same thing we just saw in Ezekiel 39. 
So folks, what I just want to say to you, and I can't wait till we come back together next week and we start looking at the good stuff. We're going to take a look at after he's defeated his enemies, there's going to be a time when he starts to set up the kingdom. And wait do you see what he's going to do to the earth during this time. It's going to be an amazing time period. And most likely we won't have enough time next week to just look at the millennial kingdom in one week. Most likely it's going to take us two weeks. That's cool because it's going to be a fun, fun study. There's so much more that we're going to look at. But for tonight, we do say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we mean rapture. Right? The day has already been set when he's going to judge the earth. And we're getting closer and closer to it. Between now and then, be praying for people to respond. Otherwise, they're not in for a good time. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.